But even that, like just golf clubs. I mean, I'm not good, but it was when you get a good weighted, I have a sandwich and I love it because the weight of it is so perfect. It just feels great. It doesn't feel like nothing. It's just a perfectly weighted club. It's, so you get that pendulum. Did it improve your game? No, no, I'm not good. But that part of my game I thought was okay, actually. Not good, but I loved, I just loved how it felt. It makes a big difference. I do that all the time, though. I'll, I'll get a new piece of tech and I'll, I'll be like, this is the thing that's going to going to put me – this new guitar is going to make me an awesome guitar player. Well, yeah, at that level, certainly. I remember – maybe it was Elton John reading some interview and he was talking about going to record something and there was some shitty piano and – or maybe somebody else was talking about it and it was not the greatest piano. But then Elton John came in and yeah. played on and that person realized, oh, doesn't matter. It's the person playing the piano. It's not the piano. When did you pick up golf? Early 30s, very late in life. Not at all relatively late in life for golf, right? Isn't that right? That that might even be early for golf. I mean, you have your like pro-level golf players, but for most people who do it as sort of a casual hobby, it is a thing that they start doing. I don't know. I always imagine it's something people play when they're yeah. young, and then they just play it their whole life, and you get good at it when you're young, and I started later. I played a whole bunch when I started, and I really liked it and played with friends, and but I was you have to play so much to get good. I think it's just volume. Is it part of your life these days? No. No. <laughs> no. I haven't played in years. It's pretty sad. I mean, you seem to keep pretty busy. I see you all over the place. You're you're doing pretty pretty well for yourself these days. I guess so. <laughs> Does it not feel like that? Different from that's different from having time to play golf. Maybe it's a good thing that you don't have a ton of downtime to sit around and play golf. Well, it just makes it harder. I have kids and yeah. that I mean, having kids is what makes it harder. Just to find the time because if you're busy working and then on the weekends it's all right, see you later. Haven't seen you all week and I'm going to go play golf, but so that makes it tougher. It's a bad excuse. I could still play every now and then, and I just don't. It's hard living in New York City because you got to get out of the city, and if it ends up being almost a full day. And Are you able to spend most of your time in New York? I mean, how much are you actually traveling around for work? It really depends, you know, at the moment. Yeah. I mean, if I've been lucky to do my own thing here that has kept me in town, and it just depends. What brought you out here? A job, writing job. The Dana Carvey show is how I ended up coming to New York. I was... A while ago now. That was 96. Yeah. Yeah, I moved here in January 96. With the exception of uh, a year, like a year and a half, not even a year and a half. So yeah, it was 96 that I moved here in January. And then for a little, the end of 96, like a month, and then all of 97. And then through the spring of 98, I was in LA. And then I moved back here when I got the Conan job. And I've been here since. So you were kind of bouncing around from show to show at that point? Not really. It was just a couple of writing jobs yeah. that took me to LA after Danny Carvey. And then I got Conan. Maybe it's just sort of my own group of friends, but everybody does seem to be moving to Los Angeles. I feel like, especially in the comedy world, it seems like we've lost a lot of people in the past 10 years. It's sort of the natural progression, I yeah. guess. You know, if you can be either lucky enough to live here, or if you really just decide that you're going to live here. It's a lot. I find it to be a lot harder work-wise. Yeah. There's just so much more work in LA and I've just been lucky to stay here and create for myself, but it still is tougher, you know, because in between jobs, there's just more out there. How was that couple of years in Los Angeles? It was fine. It was doing a couple writing jobs. Yeah. I was obviously much younger Single, no kids, not really established in career. And uh, I don't know. I didn't love it. I like it here more. LA is not terrible, but I do prefer New York. And at the time, it was just a lot of, you know, going to parties and everyone's talking about auditions. And I didn't hear about that. Oh, I got to call my, you know, it's just, just felt unfun. 
didn't it was it didn't always have to be like or didn't have to be like that but i just that was my experience i mean you were moving there for ostensibly show business yeah i still had two jobs for the majority of the time that i was there you know i was still wanted to be an actor i kind of got into writing almost by not accident but it wasn't what i was pursuing the dana carvey show just kind of came through an audition i auditioned for the show as an actor and based on that and before that i had auditioned for snl and robert smigel who was a longtime snl writer had access to all those tapes and so he just liked my audition and he knew my second city director at the time and he said you know tell glazer to do those the same stuff i really like that so i auditioned with that same audition for dana carvey show and they told me they weren't going to hire me as an actor but would i be interested in a writing job and i felt like i had to say yes to that particular one i wouldn't pursue just any writing job at the time and even today but that one i felt like i have to try and i got it and so that's how i ended up here you went to school for acting no, I didn't get a theater degree. I, I ended up with a very vague communications sure. degree. I knew I wanted to do comedy at the time. There was sketch shows and stand-up, and you, I was doing- You're from Chicago originally. No, I'm from suburban Detroit. This is where I grew up. Went to University of Michigan. Did acting classes in at Michigan. Did a sketch show. Did a little stand-up. So I was pursuing comedy without getting a theater degree. I guess in my mind, I wanted to have a more practical degree to fall back on just in case. Mm-hmm. But I knew that that's what I wanted to pursue. And then halfway in my senior year, I ended up going out to Chicago for a Second City Touring Company audition. And that is where everything kind of – that solidified the move. I didn't get hired at the time but had a life-changing experience. And after the audition was basically going to the train station back to Michigan, to Ann Arbor. And someone comes out of the theater and asks to talk to me in her office. And I didn't know who it was, but I figured this has got to be somebody that... They have an office. Yeah. And so it was really, I was really nervous, you know, in in my mind, it's, oh my God, am I going to have to drop out of school? What's about to happen? And then it was, her name is Joyce Sloan. She was a very, very influential producer there. And she was so nice and encouraging and, you know, told me to finish school. Don't break your mom's heart, you know, kind of a thing. And here's my card. Call me when you graduate. And I was like, great. Couldn't even believe it. I still have the card. That's got to be a tough pivot to go from just being on screen to, to actually actively writing. Is Smigel, is somebody at the show sort of taking you under their wing at the time to teach you how to do that? Not really. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't on screen. You know, I'd, I'd come from Second City. I hadn't done any TV necessarily. I'd but done that was a lot the, of the plan. For me, the plan was always, you know, I'm doing Second City and thankfully it worked out. I'd done touring company. I was doing main stage at the time. They have several. They had several theaters there. They had one in the suburbs that's no longer, but they have two main theaters in Chicago, one called the ETC, which is next door to the main stage, and then the main stage show. And so I was doing a main stage show at the time, but that was my plan. I'm going to do this and be an actor. And so, yeah, having a writing job come up was not what I was planning and never thought of myself as a writer ever or pursuing that on any level. And it just presented itself and... They were all, it was a great writing staff, but there was no, no one took me under their wing necessarily, but he was certainly very kind to me and really nice and helped me get the Conan job. And do you consider yourself a writer at this point primarily? Not primarily. No, I've always viewed myself as a actor first and a writer second. I think it's just a stronger suit and, but you know, writing, getting that writing job was the best thing that ever happened to me really just it opened up a whole world of job opportunities and it just helped me focus on even doing my own shows where I can write for myself and 
I'd always been writing. I mean, when you're improvising, you're spontaneously writing, basically, and you're writing on your feet. And that's part of the, the show at Second City. But I just had never thought of myself in those terms. So getting the writing job really helped focus that part of what I do. Aside from you doing a show like Parks and Rec, which is clearly somebody else's project, the Gear Show or your Cartoon Network show do seem to be a project wherein you kind of have your hands in every part of it. I mean, it, it does seem as though you're as much of a, a writer as you are on screen for those. Well, for my shows, completely. You know, Delocated and Neon Joe and Gear, I mean, those are shows that I came up with and created and pitched and am in involved in the writing on a daily basis with other people. So for sure, yeah, I mean, now I think of myself certainly more as a writer as well as mm -hmm. an actor. But for, you know, before I got a writing job, I never would have thought, I never thought I'd pursue that as a job. It never even occurred to me. And it really was just a one of the greatest things that happened to me career-wise as far as realizing, oh, I can get, I don't have to be on screen. It's my preference. Mm -hmm. But if things are slow, I can always try to get a writing job if need be. And or pursue writing on another level. But yes, for my shows, certainly it's it's great to be able to get to write for yourself. There was a Conan stuff, but I think I first really kind of realized who you were when you, you started doing these web videos. I think I would see you around town occasionally, like back when Rafifi's was still a going concern. But you did these great little short web videos. It was a baby hand. The tiny hand. Tiny hand one. At what point do you actually sort of start start making those, start producing videos and, and putting them online? I guess that would be after Conan. And even getting the Conan job, yeah. you know, was something where it was just the perfect job because it's a combination of you're writing for someone else, obviously, but you are also getting to write your own bits as well for the show and getting to port, perform them. And then after Conan, that was even where I realized when we were talking about this building when, you know, Huff. Huffington Post was doing this comedy site for a while, that 236. And I ended up doing a bunch of videos for them. That's why I was, I was realizing I was coming to this <laughs> building vu, yeah. all the time to this place. But so it was after Conan when I was doing a bunch of videos. The Tiny Hands thing was something I did live around town a bunch. And then I actually pitched it to Comedy Central in 2004 as this, it was going to be this thing potentially of, you know, this is the candidate we're backing for president. Dave Tiny Hands Gordon. And then they ended up not doing it because there was just too much Daily Show stuff. But I ended up making videos for their website. They had this short-lived website called Motherload, where I think they created original content for that and then might have shown other things as well. But I did make them for that site. So they were online for a little bit. And then Kristen Wiig did a very similar thing on SNL. All my friends were texting me, you're getting ripped off right now. It was very strange. I wouldn't say I was ripped off necessarily, but it was very suspect. It was basically the same thing, but that's another story for another time. Or it's a story for right now. Your call. <laughs> Would you like to expound upon that? I mean, it was just I remember when it happened because I had done um, – even at the time, I remember thinking, should I make a big stink about yeah. this? Should I try to – because it's just – that happens all the time. There's all – you know, competing ideas happen all the time. Yeah. But this one was a very specifically weird one for me because for a few reasons – you know, I had been doing it around town a bunch. There were for sure writers there at the time that had seen it. I know they didn't pitch it, but I always wondered, did anyone say anything? You know you were operating in similar circles as a lot of these SNL writers. For sure. For sure. So the person who wrote it, I don't know if he was a stand-up or if he got around to shows and saw stuff. But it always felt like at the time, there was plenty of people I knew there that I know were aware of it. And so I don't know if any of them said anything as far as, hey, I've seen this. Someone, and I had actually done a guest writing stint at the show back in 
2006. It, basically, when these things aired on Comedy Central was, I think, 2006. That's when I made them. And my son was born in 2006. And I ended up getting a, one of those guest writing stints at SNL. They'll hire people for a week or two. Sometimes it's a tryout. Sometimes not. I have no idea. But I had done one of those. And I remember having... Both of the, and this was maybe three months after my son was born. And I remember in the office that I was working in, I had both those little doll hands on my desk with a photo of my son in it. And I shared an office with Kristen Wiig. This is before she became such a big time cast member. And so, you know, when I saw her doing it, it was one of those, and I was only there for a week. It's not like we were there for, you know, office mates for months, but it still felt like, did she, maybe she didn't see that, but. I don't know. That's weird that she specifically is doing this character. We shared an office. I had these things. But even let's say regardless of that, you know, let's say, oh, yeah, just total honest mistake, coincidence. Mm -hmm. You know, it was brought – the fact that they – you know, any comedy show – or I would say just about any comedy show, it's most likely when you have an idea, let's look that up. Has that been done before? Sure. Just to make sure. I do that before I tweet something. You want to make sure. Yeah. You don't want to come across yeah. like you're yeah. stealing an idea. And you'd also rather not do an idea that's sure. been done. And again, it happens a lot. It happened on Delocated. We did something with a, a suit that had puppies in it. And then I found out that Andy Richter, someone I'm friends with, did a very similar thing on his sitcom. Now, when I looked it up and we... You know, we looked it up, yeah. never saw anything. And when I did find the thing, they were very different jokes. But at its core, it was still puppies in a suit. Mm-hmm. And so had I known, maybe we wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So here's the thing with, with Tiny Hands and SNL. And I remember, you know, I had one of my reps contact them and they rep people there. So it was easy for them to get in touch and just to make them aware Someone that had actually worked there had done something similar. Blah, blah. And their whole thing was, oh, we're so sorry. It was total coincidence. The writer feels terrible. That's all fine, but then they kept doing it. That was almost the bigger issue I had was that it was brought to their attention and then they kept doing it, which I thought was pretty shitty. But, oh well. You don't want to make too big of a public stink about it because people will think you're being petty. Right? Yeah, and what do, you, what do you get out of that? I've thought about that plenty. You know, Part of me <laughs> feels like, well, I want to make sure yeah. people know, you know, is it really just, I did it first? Because that's just dumb. That's to me a waste of time. And I'll still probably do, I've always thought about, doing a Vimeo page where I can at least put them up because yeah. I still want people to see them. I thought they were really great, funny, yeah. but it's a little bothersome when you see someone doing something that, that you've done and you feel like I did that, but yeah. someone else is getting the attention for it. And I don't even like to acknowledge that feeling, but it is, it's there. But that also just feels like, oh man, that Comedy Central site, no one saw it and it was kind of a bummer. And then it just went like, they eventually sold that site to some small, I think, web film company or something, and they were online still, and then they just disappeared. And now they're just not even online. I don't think you can find them. Yeah, I get that feeling from a lot of people I know who do comedy. Also, writers in general, I've been in a similar boat, you know, having been a professional writer for different publications for, God, like 15 years at this point, is that given how much media has been shifting, it does feel like for the rest of probably my professional career, I'm just going to be jumping from kind of lily pad to, to lily pad, which must feel similar as far as sort of making videos. You know, these these video sites come along, somebody pumps a lot of money into a media property in a certain season, Comedy Central or Cartoon Network wants to spend money, and then all of a sudden they... Do you feel like you're kind of in a place where it's just going to be constantly shifting environment? Yeah, I don't no, that's hard to answer, I yeah. guess. It feels like it is. I mean, it is changing a lot all the time. Who knows how? I mean, I, I don't know. It never feels to me. It's almost like I remember there was a time when people were saying books are going to be non-existent soon. And I don't think 
that's ever going to change. People, it's, people want to hold a book in their hand. There is a difference between holding a book and holding a tablet. And I think people just like books. Will there be a day where it's just Earth government has issued a mandate. You can't cut down trees anymore. Maybe someone will come up with some sort of artificial paper like the Impossible Burger where it feels like paper, but it's not. Where you, you know, you're literally not allowed to make paper anymore. So I don't know if TV's ever going to go away where it's just all streaming. But who knows? I mean, it's certainly that feels very different. Obviously, it's not a great analogy because it's already so different with websites and streaming services and I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, it's so hard to yeah. say. And uh, I try not to think about it too much and just kind of go with, well, wherever I can make a show, that's where I'll try to make a show. Sure. Or do something else. How many seasons was Delocated? It was three. Was that kind of the plan or was the plan to sort of have it run indefinitely? The plan was just to have it run as long as yeah. they would do it. I think it was a very good place to finish. You know, it was a good natural ending for for the show. So hindsight, I would love to have done one more season. I think we could have figured something out good for the show to make it keep going. But after that, I think it would have been too much. Yeah. But hindsight, it's at the time it was always, oh man, I want to do one more. But it was a good spot to end. Yeah. I mean, maybe there was something to be said though for moving from project to project. I mean, you, you do hear these stories about people who get sort of caught up in a TV show, you know, that that's the case certainly with sitcoms that you kind of get trapped into one thing. And at the very least, having done this and having worked on a lot of projects, it's it's afforded you the ability to do a lot of very different things. Yeah. I mean, if, you got, if you're on a sitcom, the good thing is it's a regular yeah. paycheck. Sure. And, and then you have kids and... Sure. <laughs> Health insurance. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's nerve wracking to be freelance. It certainly can be. So I get the appeal of doing a sitcom mm. and I'd probably do one tomorrow. Yeah. If it, it's tough because I've said that a bunch of times and then I'll get an audition and it's like, oh boy, could I really do this? And I try not to be above it. It's, but man, sometimes it's tough when it's so bad, but that's the trade-off is you can make a lot of money and have a regular job and not have to worry about that. And it re reduces your stress. So, but I've been fortunate to not have to worry about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say completely. How much are you actually doing on this new show? I mean, it seems like you kind of, again, are a, a little involved in every aspect of it. Well, again, this was, this was my show. Yeah. So it was an idea and it depends. I mean, if it's a primetime sitcom or a true TV, they've been really great. It's still basic cable. So I almost have to do everything from a financial standpoint, as opposed to just, oh, I'll let other, you know, we don't have a writer's room where I can kind of pop in and just kind of see what's up and yeah. then go hang out. But I also like that. I like to be more involved with all, with everything. But yes, it's me and a couple of guys doing the bulk of the writing. We had a couple of people come in this season to help like with ideas. And then people help with the script writing, working off of outlines, just from a logistical standpoint, as far as getting them done quicker, the scripts. But the bulk of the writing was me and these two guys, John Lee and Vernon Chapman, who were part of the production company that I work with. And I don't know if you know those guys. They're their company's PFFR. They did Wonder Shows in yeah, yeah, yeah. Holler, and they yeah. both independently of each other do tons of great things. They're they're really, really extremely smart, funny guys. Vernon did a ton of work with Louie, just came out with this show called The Shivering Truth on Adult Swim. It's amazing. John Lee directed the Pee Wee movie on Netflix. So they're really talented guys. And we do the bulk of the writing together. And then, of course, being in the show and then in post, I'm in the edit. I'm not editing, but I'll work with the editors. So it's a full-time job when I'm doing my shows, but it's great. Do you prefer that? Do you prefer having a hand in everything? For the most part, yes. But I would <laughs> love to have a job just either on a sitcom or yeah. some kind of show where I can just go to work and do my thing and go home and not worry about anything else. That's also nice. 
to be lucky enough to just have that where you're not in every single scene and but no complaints really i'm very fortunate to have gotten to do it all all these past shows and i hope i'll get to continue to be so lucky um Whatever. It's a lot of work, but it's yeah. all fun. It's really great. The movie process must be must be an interesting one, too, just sort of going off and devoting a portion of your life to that for a while. I've never really had that experience. You know, I've done... Well, you've been in... You've certainly been in things. I, I see you pop up. Yeah, but that's just little roles yeah. where it's not... I'm not doing it for big chunks. Sure. I might be in... I might be working for two days, maybe a week, as opposed to being a bigger role in a movie where you're in it for two months or so. So those have been more smaller jobs for me. The Gear Show, for example, how much of your time is actually devoted to working on that specifically? And do you feel the need to have other projects going on at the same time? Uh, it's a little of both. It's really pretty full time when I'm doing the any of the shows that, that were my shows are really full time. And then trying to certainly keep one eye on what's yeah. next. Is it seasonal? Once the show started, is it, is it taking up the bulk of your year? Once it starts, yes. Yeah. You know, the, between the writing period, the shoot, and then the edit, it does become pretty full time. The edit is busy, but not as busy. Same with the writing, where if other things came up that I wanted to try to do, I could try to do them in those two windows while we're shooting there's really no time to do anything else but again like if if you're an actor in a show you can maybe make that happen a little more realistically where it's you might have your shooting schedule and maybe one week you're only working two days and you could potentially go do something else but if it's my show i can't really do that yeah. because even, even if i'm not in something and i'm usually in almost everything i still have to be on set and watching and overseeing everything and so it's it's pretty consuming but Again, no, it's great to have that. But yeah, it's it takes up all your time. When the kids come along, I mean, does the career change at all? Were you looking to get something a little more regular at that time? Not right away. When my son was born, at least, I was still trying to be as creatively selective as I could. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully things just came up like those, that Huffington Post site that had that comedy site and that provided a lot of work and it wasn't crazy money, but it was at least enough where it's all little jobs and it's all adds up to at least mm -hmm. something. But I was still trying to be selective. And even to this day, I try to be as creatively selective as I can. And I don't always have that luxury. But I have been lucky with my own thing, especially for the last five years or so. But it's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stretches where there's nothing and not even by your choosing, obviously. And so you just have to make the best of it. It can be stressful. How much does something like that Parks and Rec stint, how much does that kind of change the math on things? Was that a big boost to... Your career is having a, you know, semi-regular job on a network television show? It certainly was. I mean, I since Parks and Rec came up, you know, I've still been pretty busy with my own thing. So it's been hard to gauge directly, yeah. you know, oh, I got this job because of Parks, even though clearly people, you know, know who I am from Parks and from Girls and all that stuff has helped. But since both of those jobs came up, I was still pretty busy with that Neon Joe show mm -hmm. and then Gear. But for sure, it's been some kind of boost, whether it's emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> you feel, though, like if somebody came along and, and offered you that network show, you would be willing to sort of give up these other projects that you've had going on in the meantime? I don't even think it's a matter of that. It, it really depends. I mean, if I'm doing these other – if I'm doing a job, I'm 
going to probably do that job. Yeah. If it's in between and something else, I think it would depend on the job. Does working on, on a network show like that, does that, does that scratch the itch that you have? Is that something that you find to be creatively fulfilling in a way that got you into this industry in the first place? Well, those particular shows, yeah. sure. If I was on some shitty sitcom where I hated it and it was just yeah. a job, then the answer would be no. Parks and Rec was a really good show, well-written. I got very lucky to just get this really super fun part. Yeah. It certainly, you know, as you're saying, scratch the itch to kind of, this would be great full-time, but that's a real stroke of luck. Yeah. To get one of those jobs, the odds are already against you. And then to have one of those jobs be creatively satisfying on top of it. So if something like that came around, for sure I would do it. It's all timing. It all depends on what's going on. But I mean, yeah, if the opportunity presented itself, anyone would do it, whether it was a sitcom or a drama or whatever. What is the most creatively fulfilling thing done in your career up to this point? Hard to say. I've been very, very fortunate. The Conan job was so much fun and creatively satisfying. Parks and Rec and Girls were both very creatively satisfying. And then I've been lucky to make several of my own things. And those are obviously creatively satisfying. I mean, I don't know, delocated maybe because it was the first one, but they're all they're they're all satisfying. I've noticed a through line with a lot of these a lot of these characters is you're very good at playing assholes. Thank you. When did you realize that you were kind of good? I don't know, a villain's not the right word, but you're very good at playing a douchebag. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's always been uh I remember early on at Conan we talked about that, you know, this affin this mutual affinity for the cocky asshole. It's just you get to it's a very fun attitude to yeah. play comedically and fictionally you know from a comedy standpoint it's just a lot of fun you get really good lines it's a very fun attitude to play and for whatever reasons i just excel at it (laughs) you're playing yourself but you're playing yourself as an asshole are you playing yourself is there part of you in there i mean i don't know kind of this one's the weirdest one from that standpoint because delocated was obviously a character and this one, I'm pl- it's my it's I'm playing myself. I'm playing an asshole version of myself, like you said. So it really blurs that line, but it is a fictionalized portrayal of myself. But it really gets weird at times because I'm playing me. And even in the edit, I've had so many moments of just watching and just kind of like, oh my god, am I really like this? Cringing like at your own. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. That's been very strange at times. We have these experiences when we watch comedy shows, like cringe comedy shows, where it's awkward for us, but there's an extra level when you're looking at yourself doing it. It's very odd. Sometimes it makes me very uncomfortable. Like, is this how people see me? Yeah. Am I like this? Do I really do this unironically? I don't think so, and I sure as hell fucking hope not, because it's, you know, playing such a dick. Ugh. Do you feel like that sort of changed the way you interact with the world, having seen this horrible side of yourself? I don't know. Probably not. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's such just stupid yeah. comedy, but I don't know. Hopefully it never blurs too much or it becomes real. You must have that thing. The level of fame that you're at, you're in things that people have seen. You get that level of recognition, but it's that level of recognition of like, you know, did we go to high school together? That happens a lot where I can sometimes tell if someone's clocking me and they, I can tell they maybe recognize me, but they're not exactly what you were saying. Yeah. You can't see this, your face on the podcast, but you were making that face of someone like, do I know that person? So I, I can see that happening sometimes. And every now and then they'll even like, you know, then it turns <laughs> into a smile of, oh, I know who you the are. N- the nod of recognition. Yeah. 
or they'll say something, but it doesn't happen a lot, thankfully. That would drive me nuts. But again, you have that extra level of people recognizing you, not knowing where they recognize you, but maybe knowing that you were kind of an asshole in that. Do you feel like that's like that, that that's like colored your interactions with people that you've played this character? I'm not sure, but it has come up sometimes. For example, when we were looking to film something for the gear show and we went to a store here in New York to see if we could shoot there. And one of their concerns was that I play that about Parks and Rec. They literally yeah. said, well, he plays such an asshole. Is he going to be like that to people? And, you know, it was so weird. Yeah. We had to explain, no, that's a character on a show. He's not that person. And I think maybe they were wondering because we it was like this fake reality show. If they were, they were, it was a legitimate concern of theirs. Yeah. And we had to explain, no, that's pretend. It was really, to me, very odd. It's a compliment of kind into your acting ability that you've been able to project this image out into the world. I guess. I don't know. Is it? Is New York still a good place for you and, and what you do? I mean, again, obviously, like if you wanted to be in the belly of the beast, Los Angeles is really the place where most of the TV shows get made. But do you feel like this is a good place for you career-wise? I don't know. Maybe not. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And my wife and I always talk about, should we be here? Should I be in LA? But then I've just been lucky to keep doing my own thing here. So probably not. It would be my guess. It's, or, or it's probably better to be in LA, but uh, I'm here for now and maybe that'll change. Been here so long, I can't imagine moving to LA at this point. But you know, if a job came up, I'm sure I would take it and either move my family there or I would fly back and forth and make the best of it. But I'm not sure if I'd move there at this point. There you go. That was John Glazer. The second season of John Glazer Loves Gear premieres on True TV this month. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify now. Anywhere we happen to get your podcasts. Have a brand new YouTube page. If that's the way you like to consume your podcast, subscribe to us over there. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's our well at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that's the first and best place to get all your riyl related information and that's about it for this week so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl